Amen. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. For those of you that are, are new with us, my name is Landon, and I am uh, the pastor here at Restoration Church. And uh, just I'm really excited to have my friend and, and mentor for a long time now uh, leading worship with us, and, uh, or for us, and, and joining us this morning. So uh, for those of you that don't know, the, the leadership structure for our church right now is that we have a management team of six men and pastors uh, that have the, the oversight of the church and really function somewhat like distanced elders until we put local elders in place. And we're in the process of that right now. We've been meeting for about six weeks, which is uh, really exciting to me to have other men and brothers that we're journeying through the, the leadership of this church with. Um, but it's just great to, to have you with us. Thanks for spending time, and you'll be doing a concert here tonight. That's right. At 6 p.m.? 6 o'clock right here. You guys, it's going to be awesome. And my friend Billy is going to bring out his dobro, which is one of his spiritual gifts. God handed out some spiritual gifts, and for Billy it was the dobro. It was incredible how he can play that. Have you, do you guys know what a dobro is? Good. You're going to have to come tonight and figure it out. <laughs> It's all right, though. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. So tonight you'll spend a little time talking about Likewise, which has been just an incredible blessing to our church over the last two and a half years with different worship leaders coming in under your kind of training and guidance. Can you tell us a little bit about tonight? And uh, I think hopefully everyone comes back, but if anyone's not, just a little glimpse of what you guys are doing with Likewise. They've heard it from me, but I'd love for them to hear it from you. Yeah, so as you know, we have, um, we have this new ministry. It's about three years old, and, and being able to partner with Restoration Church has been an incredible honor, um, even in just a season of transition and planting a church, starting things up. Uh, it's helpful for churches sometimes to be able to get a foundation poured, and so we serve different churches all around the West Coast, Phoenix, um, Northern Arizona, and then now in Southern California. We're moving into San Diego in March. But we, we just provide leadership for churches in that way as more of an interim basis. The long-term goal, obviously, is to get consistency in a church so that then the, the philosophy of worship can grow. Um, so it's been an honor to be able to serve in that way. The core, though, of the ministry is discipleship of pastors. So um, some of you may know, some of you may not know. The first time I ever led worship uh, was here in Prescott, Arizona. I was... Uh, a recording artist in Nashville for five years after high school, and then God broke my heart for the local church, um, where I then became the worship pastor at the Heights, and I was there for seven years. And then the Lord lit this fire in me for the unity of his body, and using music to do that, using music to bridge all the generational and, and uh, all the different dem demographics, all the different divides that we have in our country, music has this supernatural way of uniting people. And so it's just kind of lit me on fire. And so from that, I had this heart to raise up and train up the next generation of worship leaders, which we actually did at the Heights, uh, sending leaders, um, whether it was here in Prescott or down into the valley. And then that, that passion just began to grow as my family and I moved down into the Valley of the Shadow of Death in Phoenix, where, um, <laughs> which it totally is, by the way. Don't go there. No, it, no it's awesome. I'm just being serious. But, we, um, but being able to, to begin developing leaders um, and then Landed started hearing about this, this dream of mine to, to, uh, to have this huge network of worship pastors that are being discipled and cared for. 
A lot of you don't know my whole story, but I was in an extreme place of burnout in ministry up here in Prescott. I had taken on way more than I knew I should. At the time, I was, I was just a little bit naive to what my capacity was as a husband and as a father and as a pastor. And so I started severely burning out. Um, and it wasn't until two years after I had transitioned out of Prescott that the Lord started to reveal to me just how much that affected me and my spiritual walk. And so part of my passion is to help prevent that with other worship pastors and to go after the, the leaders that have already burned out and have left ministry and to restore them to be serving the local church again. And so that's a lot of what we're passionate about. That was the longest answer no, to your question, good. but sorry. No, it's so good. How many churches, out of curiosity, in the greater Prescott area have you guys kind of really blessed or been in partnership or are you currently with? Yeah, so over the past three years, we've been serving at different times, about 11 right now. In um, the Prescott Just area. in Prescott. Um, in Phoenix, there's about 47 churches that we're partnering with. And then um, just Arizona alone, the Likewise Worship Collective in Arizona has over 120 worship pastors that are part of our network now. We started with 12, 12. in Phoenix. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing. And I wanted you guys just to hear those numbers. So what we experience on a Sunday and have as a tiny church with 40 people in the parking lot before this building was even being developed, like this is happening all over Prescott, all over Phoenix, now in multiple states. And so thank you for what you're doing. It's yeah. an honor to uh, be in partnership. You've blessed us so much. But now also for, for you guys to be able to fin financially support likewise as well and worship, people worshiping our God over multiple states is beautiful. So thank you for your leadership and how you're discipling people awesome. all over the country. Yeah, thank you, man. Having uh, been in Prescott for seven years, is that what it was? Yeah, I was when here I was for seven years. Yeah, you were than just how a little, short I am now. Yeah, you were like, yeah. like a little hobbit. A, li a little hobbit. Yeah. What does that make you? Because it's not, yeah, you got like an inch, maybe. Know, With yeah. my hair, you might be shorter because I got some hair. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, well, if some of you remember, I used to have this beautiful hair. Beautiful. Yeah, and then ministry and children. <laughs> ministry and children. They just rip it out of you. It's just So how much time do I have left? Very little. I got three kids now, you got four. Oh, look at your dad. You have no time left. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was my mom's dad I had to look oh, yeah, at. I got right. hope. Yeah, there's hope. <laughs> so as you look at the scope of, of Prescott, and, and we talk frequently just about your love for, for Prescott and care for it, what are you excited about that God's doing in Prescott, and what role do you think he's calling us as a people united in our following of Jesus that we, we call ourselves Restoration Church and we go out into the everyday stuff of life to follow Jesus. What are you excited about for Prescott and the role we're called to play? Oh, yeah, and I, I think, I, as yes, as you said, I have this deep love for Prescott. I mean, being able to raise my kids here and to have so much deep roots here and great friendships, I, I, anytime I come up here, I get goosebumps because it just reminds me of some, some of the greatest seasons of my life so far, I'm only 24, so yeah. um, just kidding. But, uh, but being able to, um, to see, just like you said, the scope of the, the opportunity up here is so awesome. That's why I love hearing Landon's vision and the leadership's vision of what, what actually restoration could do in this community. I mean, the name of the church says it all. I mean, we live in a broken and lost world, and it's more obvious every day, is it not? 
And I think about this living now, my family and I, we live in Orange County. We're kind of at the front lines of a movement that I think is beginning to happen where the church is being refined all across America, where we are actually really having to figure out what our foundations really are and how rooted in the word of God we really are going to choose to be. And so I think with what the opportunity you guys have is this church body is so huge to reach the lost. First, reminding yourself that your time is short, that we are just a little blip on the timeline, on, on really God's timeline, and what can we do to make the greatest impact for this little bit of time we have together, and to a community that's rapidly growing. Every, I mean, everywhere I drove yesterday, I haven't been up here in, in a few years when it comes to downtown area, all the new stuff that's going in, then I'm hearing about all the new housing that's going to be going in over by the airport. It's growing, and it's a lot of the people from Orange County that are coming over. Sorry about that. That's not my fault. I mean, it may be my fault. Maybe I'm causing that. But, yes, but you are the cause. Yeah. Oh, the Ungers moved here. We're getting out of this dump. No. So, but but having the um, the incredible growth of of people coming in here means that there's even a greater opportunity for for a harvest. And so, living out the gospel, I think, is the key for for restoration's sake. So, it's exciting. What that, um, how can we be praying for you specifically and, and Fallon and your family? And then for likewise as well. Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, really, for us, it's, it's simple. We have become, as of three weeks ago, full-time missionaries with this ministry called Likewise. And so like I shared with you, we're pouring into the marriages and the, and the hearts of these leaders. And we're also helping churches that have been divided or that are in transition bringing unity and using the gift of music to do that, as we've, we've already talked about. So pray for us in this next little adventure that we're on um, as we launch in Orange County and as we start branching out to different parts of the country. Um, there's this incredible need, and we see this movement happening of just the health of leaders. And we're seeing one after another leaders falling um, to sinful behaviors. You're seeing it in the headlines of the news because they don't have the accountability that they need in the local church. They are very lonely up at the top in leadership. And then they get very exhausted. So when they're tired, that's when burnout starts. So these leaders start to burn out because they're exhausted. And when you're burning out, you make foolish decisions. And so we're a preventative ministry that is, that is designed to restore that in these leaders, specifically worship pastors. Because usually if a worship leader leaves the church, they don't ever return. That's kind of what we're noticing. They don't ever go back to the church. They find something else creative to do. And so we're pursuing these leaders in that way and bringing them back into the church so that the body can be unified with singing. So pray that we can just keep, keep taking that vision across the country in whatever capacity the Lord desires. And then like Landon said, like just with support, obviously, if you could commit to praying for us, uh, in this season, and even with raising support, that's a whole new world for us, trying to get people to partner with us on this adventure of trusting the Lord. And, and, and you can learn more about that at likewiseworship.com, or you can come tonight and you'll get an earful of awesome things that the Lord is doing. But anyway, cool. I'm thank talking way sharing. too much. No, you're not at all. So, anyway, so please you. come at 6 p.m. because this is where they wait. Hey, come over here. Come on. Would you guys mind standing with me? I'd love to just pray over Justin and likewise and, and raise a hand knowing we've talked recently about being a conduit of grace and the conduit of grace, the amount of grace that flows through you and your ministry is incredible. And so we'd love to just pray over you. 
Father, I thank you for my friend and, and mentor, Justin. God, I thank you for Fallon and their family. God, I pray your grace and your mercy and your peace upon them. And over the likewise ministry as a whole, I thank you, God, that people are worshiping you under the leadership of, of Justin and likewise all over our country. You are alone worthy of our worship, and I thank you for the gift of leadership that is flowing through likewise. May you bless it. May you protect it. May you keep it from the enemy. May you give their leadership wisdom and grace. We love you and we look to you in all we do, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to set a timer and we're going to dive in. We are in our third or fourth week in a new series called Streams. If you are uh, just joining us, um, and so I'll catch you up real quick with what that means and where we're at, and then we're going to dive into Jeremiah chapter 29. Back uh, when I was about 17, Justin still lived here, and we'd meet on a weekly basis, and uh, I was weird then, I'm still weird now, and Chelsea, my wife and I, now we're dating, and we're very seriously dating, even at 17, and so they were counseling and mentoring us, and so I should have had it all together, but I didn't at that point under Justin's me mentorship, but, but one day at 17, Chelsea and I drove down to Phoenix to go on a, on a date, and I think we went to Castles and Coasters, and then we're going to go to a nice dinner and just hang out down in Phoenix when you're 17 and live in Prescott, that's fun. And so we did, we had a great time, and then we're, we're driving on the 17 in my truck to pick dinner. And to this day, Chelsea and I are horrible at making decisions at where to go to dinner. Like, we just, neither of us can do it. And so the date was going great until this moment, and then we started to have this argument, for whatever reason, about where to go to dinner. And she proceeded to have the audacity to tell me that I was being a jerk. And I thought to myself... And then I said what I thought, which is always a good idea. Always say what you're thinking. I said, I'm not being a jerk. You're just a little slow to keep up with where I'm trying to go, which went really, really well, as you can imagine, right? And I'm still thinking in my mind, listen, listen, lady, like, we're good. I'm fine. I'm not being a jerk. You're just, it's not there. And so she pulls out this video camera. This is back in the day when the iPhone wasn't used for everything. So I actually had a video camera I took on trips and snowboarding and this and that. And we took it on the date. And so she had actually videoed this conversation. And so she pulls out the instant replay and she's going to show it to me. And I'm like, thank goodness we have this instant replay. You can show me this conversation and I will be totally vindicated. And we watch it. And I was a total jerk. Like, I was rude, my tone was terrible, and here's the crazy part. The crazy part's not that I was a jerk. The crazy part is that I had no idea. I genuinely thought I was just having this normal, good conversation. I was fully convinced of it. I had no clue of my tone and the way I was speaking to her and just being really dumb. Until I looked at this camera and this, this video, the playback, really functioned as a mirror for me, as a filter to go, hey, what you think you're seeing as reality isn't reality. What, what you think is actually happening, the way you think you're speaking and treating and respecting and loving, it's not real. There's a different and true reality and what you're thinking does not align with it. And what we need to understand in, in our lives as we follow Jesus is that that's a reality for a lot of us. What we think is true, what we think is right, what we think we're doing is often distorted. Often we don't recognize how Satan has come in and whispered lies and how brilliant 
of a deceiver he is. And that so quickly we can look at something and think that it is good when in fact God clearly says it is not good and it's devastating for our lives. And this, this really blows my mind how we can confidently walk towards something and think it's good or even think it's godly and we'll pursue it saying this is what God wants. And then you step back eventually or someone speaks into your life or you dive into the scriptures and they function as the filter and the check for our heart and our sight. Or the Holy Spirit works and it's put before you and you go, oh wow, that isn't good. That isn't what God has called us to. And so for us, being in the world but being called not to be of it, we fight this battle all the time. Satan casts shadows and distorts with darkness and deceives us on how to be spouses and parents, how to be workers and employees, how to be friends, how to be involved in our society. And he tells us this is good and, and we follow it, even though we're walking the wrong way. And so throughout the series, what we're doing is looking at six different tools or areas of life, lifestyles, you could call them uh, spaces, rhythms, practices, where God, throughout his word, promises to meet us there in these spaces, in these rhythms, in these lifestyles, to restore our sight, to transform us into the men and women he's created us to be. In Revelation 21, he gives us a picture of this, of the end, when Jesus will reign fully as king, and there will be no brokenness or pain or sin or darkness or distortion. I want to read this to you, Revelation 21.1. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God is dwelling, or God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That day sounds good. Then the one, God, seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He continues on in verse 22, describing the city where Jesus will be king, where there will be no more evil and wrong and injustice, and all will be as God designed and planned. He says, I did not see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb, Father and Son, are its sanctuary. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then we have this picture of the city. Then he showed me the river of living water. A river in the scriptures is a symbol of salvation, of life, of God's grace flowing through. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. 
The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will be no longer any curse. Notice the source of this river is the throne. God is the source of life. And from this river, from the source of life, everything will be as it was meant to be in the garden. It's perfect. No pain or tears. That wall doesn't say broken stories becoming beautiful anymore. It's just beautiful. It's the way it's meant to be. It's God's intent. It's what you long for. And so as we look at these streams and where we're at today and the series we're in, we look forward to that river, but we know we're not there yet. But God is working in us. Christ is in you. His spirit is moving today. As we dive into these streams, these practices that come together to flow into this river one day. God's moving now in you to sanctify, to redeem, to restore you to be human the way you were made to be. And he promises in the midst of the stream of repentance, in the midst of the stream of hospitality. Today we're going to talk about the stream of collaboration and then later the streams of generosity, celebration, and Sabbath throughout the scriptures to not only meet us there, but to give us eyes to see what he sees, to transform us into the men and women He's created us to be. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God's people are struggling with things similar to us. They don't have eyes to see what God has seen. In fact, the context of this is that God had provided a perfect, beautiful, good land for them. And not only did he provide the land, he gave them the law, which was actually a gift. He said, here's the way to make life good, the way I designed it. Follow this. Husbands then will take care of wives well. Parents will do a good job. Children will honor their father and mother. You'll be good to your neighbor and the foreigner. Life will be good as it was meant to be. And for a while it was. They saw what God saw until they didn't. Until Satan came in and said, yeah, there's that. But have you seen this? And he whispers his lies. And we as humanity see something different than what God says is good. And we pursue it. And they did. And it was devastating. Husbands became abusive. Neighbors treated each other terribly. They neglected the poor and the fatherless. And God said, this isn't okay. And so he, he called to them with this beautiful good word we talked about two weeks ago. And he said, repent, which actually means return. Because I have something so much better for you, God says to his people. Come back because I'm the designer of life. And here's what it looks like when it's good. Come to me. And they didn't listen because they didn't see what God saw. They saw something else as good, and they walked further away. And so like a parent that has watched their child repeatedly run into a busy street over and over again, like that parent decides to discipline their child so that they learn not to run into the street where they might get run over, God sends another nation to actually capture Israel, actually to protect them from themselves because the road they're going down will be permanently and eternally devastating. And so this other nation, Babylon, captures them and takes them away. And God says, I'm disciplining you because I love you. Because you're pursuing something you think is good that only leads to death. And so that's where we find ourselves. The nation of God's people has been captured. They've been taken from their homes. They're in exile. And they're blind. Their vision has been distorted. We pick up in verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he says who he is two times, very intentionally. He says, this is what Yahweh, the God of all, the God of armies and angels, the God of the universe, your God, this is what he says. He wants to clarify this is coming from him because there were all kinds of false teachers in the name of religion and even in the name of God saying, do this, this is good, walk this way. And it wasn't. They were deceiving they were destroying. This is a little bit terrifying, but God, or excuse me, Satan uses religion. He uses false prophets that maybe even speak with the name of Jesus to deceive us. And that's what was happening. And so God clarifies, this is what Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says to all of the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. We can read that and, and not think too much of it. That sounds normal. But if you've just been taken as a captive into a land far away from your home, the last thing you want to do is think about building a permanent home. You don't want to wait until your little kids grow up and you give your daughters away in marriage. You don't want to wait until the, the seeds that you've planted in the garden produce produce. You don't want to dive in and engage. After all, this is God's people. Why would they? They're the chosen ones. They are the elect of God. Why would they engage with this foreign nation? Who cares about gardens and plants and buildings and homes and that culture and that society? It can't matter. And that's what the false prophet said. It doesn't. So build walls. Stay away. Hide yourselves. Don't engage. Don't immerse yourself in the culture. And then God says something entirely different. He calls them to collaborate with the city where they are foreigners. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. They didn't see gardens, plants, homes, marriage, love, life. Even in Babylon, God's people did not see it as good. They saw it as bad because their vision had been distorted. This is what Satan has done since the beginning from Genesis 3. He's incredible at taking something that's good in life and causing us to view it as bad. It's kind of like with my three children. If I, I found a room and I put everything that they loved in it, like ice cream sundaes with all their favorite flavors and whipped cream and cherries and nuts and all kinds of chocolate sauce and strawberry sauce and their favorite movies and music and friends and like stuffed animals and soccer, like everything they wanted in this room. And then I go away and I tell them, hey, go to this room. I put everything you love. It's really good. Go in that room. I, I set it up for you. But in, in the meantime, while I left and while they're walking to this room, somebody else comes and shuts the light off and it's pitch black and, and turn on this fan that makes this creaking noise kind of like what we hear. And so my kids walk up to this dark room where all this stuff they love is in. And they just see shadows and this creepy, creaking fan is what they hear. And they think to themselves, that can't be good. I'm not going to go in there. And their friends and family and stuff they love are in there, but they don't want anything to do it. They don't see it as good. That's what Satan does. He deceives. The reality that the light is off doesn't change the fact that what is in there is good. When the light switch goes on, they would see it as good. But Satan shuts our spiritual light switch off. And we don't see what is true what is real. So God provides the, the scriptures. He provides the spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes because he warns us of Satan. 
of the deceiver, of his darkness. He puts it this way in Matthew 4, 16 through 17. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. This is speaking of Jesus, or of himself. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Where Jesus will reign, it will be light. Remember that picture of the city. There's no need for the sun or moon because God's glory illuminates it. In the next chapter of Matthew, we read something similar. He's now saying to his disciples who will have Christ and the Spirit in them, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Throughout the scriptures, there's all of this language of light and darkness, that, that Satan shuts the lights off so that we don't see God's good creation as good. It happened in Genesis 2. God creates the world and life and Adam and Eve in relationships, and then he tells them to go cultivate, to go build the world, to make something even better out of it, to have families and gardens and produce culture, art and industry and buildings and life. And they saw it as good. Over and over again, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, until sin and Satan enter the scene and start whispering and then Eve looks out and it says in Genesis 3, Eve looked and saw and she determined it was not good. What happened? The lights went off, Satan blinds and he distorts. We've struggled with this for a long time. And, and so in Jeremiah 29, God's people are struggling with this. We struggle with this. And so when they hear build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, they don't want to engage. They don't see this as valuable. But all of life matters to Jesus. Not just what happens in this building or when we sing songs or in the scriptures or pray. Our God is the God of all. Abraham Kuyper puts it beautifully when he says this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In the best sense of the word, mine. Our Jesus is not just the Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the spiritual. He is God over all. And so he looks at marriage and parenting, at business, at art, at industry, at technology, at everything in this world. And he says, everything that's good, it is mine. It is good. And Satan wants to deceive us and for us to think it is not good. The exiles in Babylon wanted Babylon to burn. They wanted it to be done. They wanted to go back home. And sometimes that's how we approach life. We say, come soon, Lord Jesus. We want nothing to do with this world. But Jesus is saying, no, it's all mine. Yeah, it's distorted. But it was good, and I'm redeeming it to be good and perfect eternally. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. God is calling them to collaborate with the city long term. That would have been painful to hear. They've just been taken from home. And you're going to stay here long enough for your kids to grow and get married and to have kids. Collaboration values all of God's good creation appropriately. When we collaborate with the city, when we build houses and plant gardens and start contributing with society and what's going on around us, we are actually echoing what God has said. We are saying it is good. We are echoing God's words and fighting against Satan's 
when he says that it's not good. We recognize it's distorted, but that Jesus is redeeming. We're called to be in the world and not of it. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Collaboration with the city requires having something to offer and to contribute. To plant a garden is to have something to offer. God said, yeah, these are your enemies. These are the foreigners that took you captive. Make something for them. Be a part of society because I created you for life. And Jesus died on a cross not to save us from hell, though he does that, but to save us to life, to live, because it is good. And so we're called to collaborate and to have something to offer. How about, how about this one? Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. I cannot think, I mean, my daughters are only five. I cannot think of any greater or more significant form of collaboration than to give your daughters in marriage. I got a ways to go until then. But I think about it now, and I, I process this little five-year-old boy, whoever he is, wherever he is, or boys, that will one day marry my daughters, and I'm praying for them. I'm pleading with God to open their eyes to see life his way, that they would understand eventually, not at five, right, but eventually, I'm praying now, that they would understand what it means to be a husband as God has designed it, and a father as God has designed it, and, and a citizen and a worker as God has designed it. Why? I want to collaborate with those little boys, because when they meet my daughters who I care about and love, I want to be involved. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to support them. I want to be there for them. Like there's no greater form of collaboration, of involvement, of depth and relationship than for God to say, give your daughters in marriage and have your sons take wives. That's about as intimately as you can be involved. Collaboration requires building deep relationships with the city. They were called to do this in Babylon, and we're called to do that here because it is good. Rick McKinley explains this concept in his book, Faith for This Moment. He says this, Think about the last time you drove down the highway. What kept the other cars on their side of the road and prevented them from running into your car? The answer is something called a lane. At some point, somewhere, Someone decided that a road should contain stripes, white ones to separate people going in the same direction, and yellow ones to separate people going in opposite directions. As a result, people can travel safely and orderly as they drive down the road, take away the painted lines, and watch what happens during rush hour. The person who drives the truck that paints the lines on roads doesn't have a mundane job. They are saving our lives, literally. Think about what you bought at the grocery store recently. Where did the products come from? Who made them? Who grew them? Who picked the tomatoes and baked the bread? How did the milk appear in the carton? Who drove these things to your city? How did they get into the bins and onto the shelves? These are good things in life. This was God's plan in Genesis 2 when he says, it is good, go cultivate. Almost no job exists that does not lead to the flourishing of humanity. The jobs that don't lead to flourishing are criminal. Pimps and drug dealers, doctors who overprescribe opioids to make some extra cash, their activities do not make our communities and world better. All non-criminal work is holy, meaning there are no mundane jobs. And so to see what Jesus sees, we have to say it is good. 
Now, it's clearly the case that it is also distorted. It's not all as it was meant to be. There's brokenness and hurt and pain. The tears are still flowing until Jesus returns. But it is good and he is redeeming. And so we are called to collaborate and engage with our city. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Collaboration requires seeking what is best for your city. Not just for self, not just for the church, but for the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity or shalom, you will too. Collaboration requires praying for your city. I want to look back at this list really quick. And for each of us, just to reflect as a church, a people who are united in our following of Jesus, called to carry his name and be a signpost of his coming kingdom, of that city with the river in it. We're, we're, as we live our lives, going to be an example. We're a signpost. When people look at us, they're going to go, oh, that's what I can expect from Jesus. So ask yourselves these questions. Are we valuing all of God's good creation? Are we collaborating and building deep relationships with the city? Do you have something to offer and contribute? Are you seeking what is best for your city and community? And do you pray for your city? Do you pray for its leaders and officials, for its school systems, for its businesses, for the art, for the spirits at work here, that God's spirit would unify and that his light would shine and his glory would be known? Do you pray against Satan and his demonic forces that are casting shadows right here in our city and in our families and in our midst? Are you praying for your city? God calls us to seek him, to appeal to his character and his love for the sake of of the people around us because when he made it, he said, it is good. Verse 8, for this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, in case they forgot who was speaking, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. Satan casts shadows that cause us to be blind. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. That's terrifying. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. Again, he warns us. Satan is out there to deceive and to destroy, to cause us to be blind, to not recognize what is good and to pursue things that aren't good. As God's chosen people heard this from the prophet Jeremiah, they had options, as always. They had choice. They didn't have to listen to God in this moment. And so really, I think they had four relational opportunities, ways of approaching their time in Babylon. And and we'll kind of close our time this morning breaking that down. The first that they, they could have embraced is to be out of the world and not of it. To be out of the world and not of it. Sometimes we fall into this category of how we approach our city and our community. And as you listen to these four opportunities that you might fall into, ask yourself which one you think you are. The first, though, out of the world and not of it. If we're falling into this category, what it means is we're not really engaged with our culture and our city. We're not immersed in the schools and businesses and in politics. We're not a part of boards or the PTA. We kind of just do our thing. We hide in our homes and in our walls. We protect ourselves. We're not in the world. We're out of it. And we're not of it. 
So we're probably spiritual, religious. We might come to church and do Bible studies and pray and seek God. But we're missing one part of what God's saying. He's clearly saying throughout all the scriptures and Jeremiah and throughout, be in the midst of your city. Care for your city. Care for the people. Use your gifts there. Not just for the spiritual, but it's Jesus looking out at everything in humanity and crying out, it is mine. And so to be out of the world is not where we're to be. We're to be in it. To not be of it, of the mindset of the world, makes sense. But we're called to see what Jesus sees, which is that it is good, distorted but good, and he's redeeming and he calls us to join on his redemptive ministry and work because the Christ is in you and he will work powerfully if you just step into the community. The, the second option of how we can relate with our culture, with our city, with our community is this. We could be in the world and of the world. Again, in this case, we get one part of the relationship right and one wrong. To be in the, in the world is good. Jesus demands it. He calls us to be in the midst of the world, to be a part of the fabric of society, to be good citizens. Again, to be on boards and involved and contributing and businesses and schools and politics and the everyday stuff of life. The city should know who you are, the people of it, the community, the soccer teams, whoever it is, wherever you are, you're called to be a part of it. We're called to be in the world. Immerse yourselves there. Build gardens and houses Give your daughters in marriage. Seek the welfare of the city. Have something to contribute. Seek its prosperity. But sometimes what happens when we're in the midst of the world is that we also take on its mindset. And so we see what Jesus sees partially and that we see the world as good. But we go a little bit too far and we don't rely on the Father, on Jesus, to be the definer of what is good. And instead we ask the world how am I to be a husband? How am I to be a wife? We ask the world, what, is, what, what matters in parenting? What do I need to do for my kids? We ask the world, how do I handle my finances? And they say, hold it in tight. Don't give. Don't be generous. Build up walls. Protect yourself. And so we don't rely on the Father to be the definer of what is good. We're in the world and we're of it. And we're not seeing as Jesus sees fully. The third option is that we're out of the world and we're of the world. In this case, we're really putting up a front. We're not engaged in society and in culture and in schools and on and on like I've described. But actually, behind the walls that are often spiritual and religious that we hide behind, we're just like everybody else. There's no difference. Everyone outside of our walls, they're worried about their own kingdom and consumerism and individualism and what will be mine. But behind our spiritual walls sometimes, what we're concerned with, if we're honest, it's me, myself, my family, my kingdom, my 401k, my yard, my stuff. And so we're not of the world. We're out of it, which actually isn't good. We should be in it. But we actually have the mindset of it behind these walls. Here's the fourth option and what we're called to. We're called to be in the world and not of it. This is where the stream of collaboration is. This is where we dive in. We're called to be in the midst of society, but, and this is key, to have the mind of Christ, as Paul says. To have eyes that see relationships as created by God. To have eyes that see art as a gift of God. To have eyes that, that see the people working in our city as people doing what God created them to do. To celebrate that and to say it is good. I, I don't know if you caught this. 
But in Revelation 21 and 22, we're given this picture that the, the stuff we do, the things we create, the intellectual property and technology and art and, and the stuff of life that our society is working on together, there will be parts of it that exist in God's kingdom, where in Jesus reigns. Listen to this in verse uh, 24. The nations will walk in its light. This is the city with this river. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Think about that for a second. All over the world, the different nations are producing, they're cultivating. If you look at the, the start of humanity to where we are now, we've done really well. It's pretty incredible to see what mankind has created and achieved and modern medicine and art and music and collaboration and transportation. I mean, I could be across the country or world later today on an airplane. That is crazy. That's what God had in mind when he said, cultivate. I've made something good. Now go be creative like I am and make this beautiful world even better. The glory of the nations. What you do today matters because it might be part of what is in God's kingdom. The impure, the vile, the unjust, the criminal, it won't be there. It will be burned away. It will be gone. But hear me on this. Not everything burns. Rather, Jesus comes down from heaven. Heaven and earth collide, and he reigns on his throne in our world because he died on a cross to save us, not from death and not from hell, but for life. And so your life today, your work today, even in the moments it feels mundane, it matters. It matters significantly. When I uh, was dropping my, my daughters off at school one day this week, I was running late, as always, and I was on crutches, so that made me extra late. And so what, the, way, the way it works is that you take your kids and you drop them off in the cafeteria, and they all get in a line behind the rest of their classmates. And then when it's 8.05, which I got there at like 8.06, one by one, each classroom in a single file line led by their teacher walks out of the cafeteria and they go to their classroom. And so we were late as we pulled up. Um, the first class was leaving the cafeteria and so we weren't gonna make it into the cafeteria. So we leaned up against this brick wall and I just, I knew it was gonna take a minute. So here's Aaliyah and Sienna and we're sitting there and I'm just observing it's just what I do. I'm thinking all kinds of thoughts, and I'm just looking out, and here's what I see. Over to my right, I see this really tall flagpole with our American flag kind of um, going in the wind, and you hear it clanking on the pole. And then I look, and I see just this row of, of beautiful homes, really well landscaped on, on Park Avenue there. And then I see a policeman with, or a couple with their little motorcycles, and they're, they're, they're dealing with traffic. They're keeping people safe. Parents are crossing the street, going to school. Kids are running around like crazy. And then I see just all of these brick buildings as this kind of warm breeze comes across. And, and my kids are here, and now a few classes have gone by. And I'm thinking about all of these people and sweaty little kids. By 3 o'clock, that place has to be disgusting. But it's clean. And I'm processing the administration and the leadership that have made it possible for the school to be functioning the way it is. These parents are dropping off their kids and now one class at a time, 20 to 30 kids in a single file line are going and there's these dedicated teachers just leading all of these kids this way and that way and the next. 
And later throughout the day, they're going to bend down and talk to these little kids and pour into them and teach them life. And then there's this one little kid that walks by right before my girls left. And he's kind of just got the special bounce to him. He's, he's got to be like seven years old, and he's walking pretty confidently, happy, just looking all over the place. But then he sees me, and he goes like this. And I'm like, what is this kid doing? And then he taps his watch twice. And he goes, it's time for school. I'm like, it, it sure is. I really like your watch. And he goes, thank you. And he just walks on his way to school. And then I just started thinking, there's all of these people collaborating together for the sake of little watch boy. Because who knows who little watch boy is going to grow up to be. See, later in that day, his teacher, I don't even know his teacher's name or his name, but that teacher will bend down and get on a knee and talk with this little boy as he's learning math or the alphabet and language or building blocks or whatever he does. Who knows how he is going to contribute and cultivate in this world. But guess what? That little seven-year-old right now or however old he is, he's actually doing what God commanded us to do in Genesis 3. He's recognizing that there's good in this world and he's learning to cultivate it. And so I look out and I see the policemen collaborating so that kids can get safely to school. People that made cars so that people can be transported there. Parents dropping their children off. The principal of the school, Karen, who's done this wonderful job as the leader, setting up all the faculty, getting everything ready, the teachers pouring in, the people that have cleaned the building, the systems, the lawyers that have set up the the structures that need to be there. Like there's so much that's going on. People making food for little seven-year-old watch boy later to have lunch so he can go back and learn. There's all of these things going on, so many different parts and people that God has made collaborating. And so sometimes I could look at that boy and think, man, I'm late for for work. I have a meeting, and this kid's costing me 10 more seconds. Sometimes that's how we think. Or I could go, what does Jesus see in this moment? Jesus sees a little brown-haired, brown-eyed, seven-year-old boy who's really excited about his watch that he created, that he made. That he said, it is good. Not only did he create and make him, but actually Jesus died for that little boy when he died on the cross. And he didn't die just to keep that little boy out of hell. He died because that little boy has potential and gifts and abilities that God made him with. And one day that little boy is going to contribute. And so you have all these people collaborating. And here's the thing. A lot of them, they don't even know why they're doing it. They don't recognize that the reason they're pouring into this little boy's life is because... This God named Jesus made him and saved him and will sustain him to be a part of his kingdom. This little boy with a watch might contribute something that is the glory of the nations that will be a part of our lives eternally. And so Jesus looks at that boy and he sees it is good. He looks at that little boy and he sees something valuable and beautiful. And he calls us as his church of people who are united in our following of Jesus to collaborate behind that boy and this city and the schools and the businesses and the art, the things we agree with and the things we don't, to celebrate what will be a part of God's kingdom and to graciously and humbly speak against what won't, but nonetheless to collaborate, to seek the best interests, to pray for the city, to have something to offer and contribute, to build deep relationships with it, and to echo God's words, it is good. Let me close with this last quote and we'll be done. Dallas Willard I think paints a great picture for us. He says this, Holiness and devotion must now come forth from the closet and the chapel 
to possess the street and the factory, the schoolroom and boardroom, the scientific laboratory and the governmental office, instead of a select few making religion their life with the power and inspiration realized through the spiritual disciplines like streams, all of us can make our daily lives and vocations be the house of God and the gate of heaven. It can and must happen, and it will happen. The living Christ will make it happen through us as we dwell with him in life appropriately disciplined in the spiritual kingdom of God. We're called to collaborate. Satan wants to blind, but as we dive into these streams and this week collaboration, God wants to give you eyes to see what he wants you to see, ears to hear what he wants you to hear, and a heart to feel what he wants you to feel. And his love, his power, his spirit is going to be the one that does that work. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. Sometimes I don't think we, I know, we do not spend enough time just being in awe of who you are. That you are an absolutely brilliant, incredible, amazing creator. That this world is good. And though it's broken and distorted and painful, God, you died not only to save us, but to save this world, to redeem it. And you've promised to restore it. And we long for that city and for you to be king fully. We recognize that we're not there yet, Father. But with one foot in that city in the kingdom of heaven and one foot in our city here today, we long to be who you've made us to be. Give us eyes to see, Jesus, what you want us to see, what you want us to value, what you want us to do. We lay ourselves, our families, our finances, all of who we are before you. Because you are trustworthy, you are always good, you are always faithful, and you are always loving. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue uh, to worship, we, we worship in response every week, and, and we do so in three ways. If it's your first time with us, the, the first is through reflection. And so spend the next couple minutes just reflecting. How are you called to collaborate with our city? How are you called to see what Jesus sees and here's the reality we don't have the power to do that but if you simply ask and say Jesus I want to see what you want me to see he will answer that prayer and you will work powerfully as the church to carry his name in our community and that's good news second way that we respond in worship is by taking communion as we take the the bread and we dip it into the cup symbolizing Jesus body that he allowed to be killed and his blood he allowed to be shed we recognize that he rose victoriously and that he will in fact reign as king and that he is in you and that he says it is good. Allow him to work in you. Find courage recognizing he's always with you. And so whether you take it individually, there's one station here and three in the back or with your community or your family, feel free to walk up during this next song and to, to take communion recognizing you are united with Christ. And then lastly, uh, there's, there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room, or if you'd prefer to give online, there's instructions on how to do so there. But we give in response in worship to say that nothing we have is ours. It's, it's all the Father's. And so let's continue to worship now in our response.